Heavenly Father, right now, this hour, the greatest need that your people have from you is the need for you to come here and be with us. For you to pour your Holy Spirit on us so that we can hear and embrace the glory of Christ Jesus in the Scriptures. So that we can enjoy fellowship with fellow believers who love you and trust you and desire you above everything else. And Father, so we can seek more clearly the beauty and majesty of Jesus. That's why we gather. That's why we're here, Father. That's why we celebrate Easter, is because Christ Jesus is just that glorious. And so I pray right now, Father, that you take our hearts, that you'd open them, that you'd open my heart to the Word, that you take even the weakness of this servant here, Father, and that you would spend me over the next 30 to 40 minutes in your great purposes to glorify your name and for the good of your people, Father. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So uh, earlier in Colossians, um, Paul ended the Christ hymn, if you guys remember this, this is in Colossians 1, uh, with one of, his, one of the most comprehensive statements about the glory of Jesus Christ in the purpose of redemption, I believe, has ever been uttered by a human being. The statement is this, For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, through Christ Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul is saying at the end of the Christ hymn, through Christ God was reconciling to himself all things. The cross is ground zero of God's great work of reconciliation, and it surges outward from the cross in every direction in the form of the gospel. That's the form it takes. Paul says that the proclamation of the gospel in all of creation is God's instrument that he goes about in the world performing his reconciling act. In other words, the ministry of reconciliation, which Paul has been tasked with and he's been spending the last few verses explaining to us, and which we are, as believers, caught up in, that ministry is actually God working in and through his own people to complete the reconciliation of all things. Think about that for just a second. When he decided to redeem all of creation... He did not leave us, his people, out of the equation. He is offering and inviting us into that great work of reconciliation. And that's what we've been spending the last several weeks on, looking at Paul's view of this ministry of reconciliation, which is a, a phrase that we get from 2 Corinthians 5. This is our last week looking at the ministry of reconciliation in this text. And as we prepare our hearts for Easter, I want to spend just a, a, a small section of time in the first five verses of Colossians 2, looking at how Paul finishes his statement of this is what the ministry of reconciliation is. This is what it looks like for God to reconcile all things to himself through his church. 
So Colossians 2, 1 through 5 begins like this. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So like I said, this is our last week looking at the ministry of reconciliation. Paul is explaining his ministry for the Colossian church and for the church at Laodicea and for the other churches, especially those who haven't ever seen him face to face. And he's telling them, listen, I am toiling for you. I am struggling for you. In fact, the last verse of the previous chapter, he says that I am toiling and struggling for you with all of Christ's energy that he works powerfully in me. And that word struggle literally means I am fighting for you. I am fighting for you. And the question we should ask is, is to what end? What end are you fighting for them? What's the goal that you have for this fight, this contention, this struggle? Paul says three things, and he links them together in a chain. This, these three things are the fruit of a life that is encountered the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the fruit of a life that has been reconciled to God. Paul is doing everything he can, everything he can to cultivate in the Colossian Christians these three fruits. First, he says, I want your hearts to be encouraged. I want your hearts to be encouraged, and I want them to be encouraged such that they are knit together in love. That's the kind of encouragement I want you to have. That true Christian fellowship is a kind of a pedigree of unity and love where you honestly can't tell where one heart ends and the other heart begins. That's the kind of love that Paul's after in the church of Colossae. Now, number two, he says he wants that love to lead somewhere. He wants that love to press the Colossians forward to reach all the riches of full assurance and of understanding. And what he's saying there is, I want the unity that you have in the body of Christ, the love that you have, um, to point to the guaranteed reality that you can be assured of, that there is a hope of glory, that Christ will come back for you one day. He will come to get you one day. That is guaranteed, and I want you to be assured of that. And number three, he wants them to reach the knowledge of the mystery, which he sums up in one word, Christ. The knowledge of the mystery is Christ. And effectively what he's telling them is this, I want you to know Christ Jesus. I don't want you just to intellectually know him. I don't want him to be a fact in your head. I don't want him to be this idea that you have. I don't even want you to know different theological things about him. Outside of this, I want you to know him for who he is as in a, the deepest, most intimate possible knowing that you can have with him, a relationship where you love him. You can know that the sky is blue. That's not the way that he wants you to know Jesus. He wants you to know Jesus like 
you are everything to me. That's the kind of knowledge Paul is talking about here. And last week we talked about the fact that all of this is granted to us through the Holy Spirit, which is an amazing concept. The Spirit of Christ has been poured out into us, and He has poured God's love into us. A, He's sealed us with the Holy Spirit, meaning that we have a down payment on the inheritance we're going to receive on the day of redemption, and He is giving us every single thing we need to love Him, to know Christ, to trust Christ with ever-increasing commitment and intensity. And this is what it means to have the mystery of Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Think about this for a second. When God desired to show you how serious he was about saving you, he didn't write it on the wall. He didn't give you a vision. He didn't give you anything else in all creation. He came to live inside of you. He came to live inside of you. He didn't give you creation. He gave you the creator. And Philippians 2, 12 through 13 says that we should consider that reality in fear and trembling. Not in bad fear or trembling, in joyful fear and trembling that the God of the universe is in us to fulfill his good purposes. So now Paul has done that. He's summed that up, those three different things. How does he end his exposition of what it means to be a minister of reconciliation. Well, he says in verse 3 of chapter 2, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's how he finishes this. What does he mean by that? Well, very simply, he's saying that any kind of wisdom or knowledge that you desire in this world can be found in one human being. Christ. And he's saying that there's nothing, absolutely nothing of lasting value that you need to know in this world that doesn't already belong to Christ. Paul, uh, Proverbs 2.6 says this, the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So even in the Old Testament, it's proclaiming this reality that wisdom and knowledge come from God. They are, according to this text, hidden in Christ. And Paul refers to this as a treasure. That's the word he chooses to use here, which is really interesting because he's been using this other word, riches, throughout this entire passage. And you have to ask yourself, why this emphasis on these words, treasure and riches? Why use these words to describe Christian ministry? And He's emphasizing clearly here that these words have incredible value, that there's something of incredible value here. In fact, the the word for treasure here in Greek is the word for storehouse. It is a repository of things that have immense value. These words aren't being used by accident. He's not doing this by accident at all. He has a design here which actually takes us to the very reason he wrote this letter in the first place, which we've talked about a few times before, but I'll cover briefly here. If you recall, this man named Epaphras, who is likely the pastor of the church at Colossae, has come to Paul, and he's, he's concerned with something that's going on in the Colossian church. He's telling Paul, listen, there is this strange new teaching that's come into the church, 
and it's begun to infiltrate the believers at Colossae. And it's telling them that the gist of it is that, that the gospel in and of itself is insufficient to stop you from sinning. It is insufficient to save you fully from your sins. Jesus may have died for you. You may have faith in Jesus. But ultimately, it can't stop you from sinning. And if we look at Colossians 2.23, for example, you see in Colossians 2.23 what Paul's after here, what specifically the problem is with the Colossian church. He says, stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You can't do it on your own. And the heresy effectively here is being validated by the simple fact that Christians in and of themselves can't stop sinning. They can't seem to stop sinning. And so they've got faith, they've got hope, they've got love. We know that from Colossians 1. Those are all the marks of a true Christian, but they're struggling with this indwelling sin. They don't want to sin anymore. They don't want to indulge in the flesh anymore, but they do. And the solution, according to this new teaching, is very simple. You have to keep certain days sacred. You can't eat certain kinds of food. You can't drink certain kinds of drink. And even you have to worship certain kinds of angels. And these are all elements of Greek and Hebrew philosophy that have been woven into this argument that says Jesus Christ and the gospel are insufficient. These traditions and philosophies actually have wisdom. They have knowledge. And they are the key. And the real tragedy of all this really is this simple thing. That, the, that Jesus... The idea, the concept that Jesus isn't enough. That the gospel isn't enough. That's the tragedy here. Paul is saying to them in this letter, no. The gospel is enough. The gospel is sufficient. And Paul uses words like treasure and riches intentionally because he means for them to see that Jesus Christ is infinitely worthy of their affection. That Jesus is the treasure. That's the whole purpose of Colossians. That's why we as a church are in Colossians. Because it is one of the books of the Bible that lays out very clearly Christ is the supreme value in the universe. He is the most significant thing, more significant than anything else you can even conceive of. And we know this, obviously, because of what we've already read in Colossians. Um, but it's the testament of Scripture and of the New Testament specifically. It's, it's, it's what... The Bible is pointing to consummately, constantly referring to Jesus as Lord. Romans 14, 8 through 9, for instance, Paul says, For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the living and of the dead. Paul's point here, and the point of the New Testament authors in calling Jesus Christ Kyrios, is specifically that Jesus is Lord. He is the Lord of Lords. There is no one like him. Not a single human being in the universe ever is like him. Nothing, absolutely nothing, compares to him, which is what we got a glimpse of last week when we looked at Philippians 3. And we saw Paul said, there is nothing that you could offer me in this life that is greater than the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, 
my Lord. And Paul finishes the passage in this section in Colossians 2, 1 through 5 with this line. He says, I'm telling you this, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible words, plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, and I am rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul's point in this section in Colossians is that he wants them to have firm faith in Christ Jesus. He wants them to trust in Christ. (laughs) And that means, at the very bottom of all the trusting, that means that I want you to know and value Jesus Christ in his right and appropriate valuing as a supreme treasure. This isn't Paul's opinion about Jesus. This isn't an idea that he came up with. This is objective reality, and he's encountered it, and part of the ministry of reconciliation is holding out that fact. Jesus Christ is really this valuable. He's the highest and greatest and most glorious thing in existence. Now, when contemplating how I might show that to you on today, Palm Sunday, um, I found a fitting example. And so please turn with me to Luke 19 if you've got your Bibles. We're going to start in verse 36. While you're turning there, I'll give you the context. Jesus is effectively done his earthly ministry. He's got one week left. And he's returning to Jerusalem. He's riding down, actually, the Mount of Olives on a colt. And something big is going to happen. Everybody knows this. There's something that's going to happen in the next few moments, next few days, that will change the course of human history. The air is thick with it. The world is about to change, and somehow this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is at the center of it. And even his disciples have this fevered anticipation, you read in the other Gospels, expectant that something great is going to happen. But not everyone is excited about change. Listen to these words. And as he rode, this is verse 36, and as he rode, Jesus rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So let's go there. Picture this scene in your mind. A man is riding a colt down the Mount of Olives. He's slowly descending. He's got an entourage in his wake. It's very small. But there's a multitude on both sides of the street, and they're kind of pressing in around him. And you see him. This is Jesus of Nazareth. And and the people that are around the road start throwing their cloaks on the ground before his colt. And they begin to praise him with a loud voice and rejoice 
And the reason why they're doing that is because they've seen him heal people. They've seen sight restored. They've seen people who were lame their whole life walk. They've even heard a story that he took someone who was dead and brought them back to life. And they believe it because they've seen what he's done. This must be the Christ, the chosen one of Israel that the scriptures talked about, the son of David, the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And this Christ, this Messiah, will establish God's kingdom forever. And he will usher in peace, finally peace, for all of God's people who've been oppressed by the Roman government for years. And as Jesus presses on, there are Pharisees on the edge of the crowd. And they are not happy with the scene. You can see on their faces, they are filled with anger and vitriol. And they shout up at Jesus as he passes by and says, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. To which Jesus responds, If these were silent, the very stones would cry out. You can imagine how they took that. Uh, They would shortly thereafter conspire to kill him. But think about what Jesus said here. If these were silent, these people didn't praise me. The stones below your feet would cry out. What does he mean by that? What is he trying to say? At the very least, he must mean that creation even the most inanimate and dead creation knows who Jesus is. They know he's Lord. Even the stones that we walk on desire to delight in their creator. They know the one who made them. And were it not for these people meeting some appropriate level of affection in their vocalization of praise, at the reality of Christ Jesus entering into Jerusalem, the very molecules that form creation would cry out in worship. They would not hold back any longer because it wouldn't be right for this man not to be worshipped. That's staggering to think of. But for the Pharisees who studied Scripture their entire lives, Jesus is saying something more to them. In fact, This moment, they may hear him say that, and their minds might go to a promise of God in Isaiah. A promise that spoke of creation crying out as God's people are led forth in joy. Listen to this, Isaiah 55, 12 through 13. This is Isaiah speaking on behalf of God to his people. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, for Yahweh, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Off. The prophet Isaiah is saying that the people of God one day will be led forth in peace. One day they will go out in joy. 
And the reason he's speaking of this promise to the people of, of Israel right now is that they are not in peace. The people of God are not in peace. They are, at this very moment, about to become captives of another nation, a foreign nation. They are about to be enslaved, effectively. And they are without any hope in this world. They have no hope. They have no peace. They have no joy. But Isaiah is telling them, peace is coming for you. It's coming for you. And joy is coming. And when it does, I want you to know, people of God, that the very mountains and the hills will break forth in singing. That the very trees of the field will clap their hands in joy. All of creation, every single atomic particle in the created universe will worship in this moment. Why is that? Because someone who is worthy of celebration is leading this procession. Now to be clear, what's happening with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem in the text in Luke isn't this scene. What's referred to as Palm Sunday isn't what Isaiah is talking about here. The mountains and the trees are not celebrating in Luke. Yet, in order for that to happen, Jesus actually has to go to his destination. And we know this because of the line Isaiah says, Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. Why put that in there? Why include that? Very odd. All of creation singing, and you're talking about a change, a, a reversal. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. Well, we know that a thorn and a briar are not good things. If you worked in the garden at all, especially around blackberries, you know these are very bad things. In fact, they will cut and lacerate anything that touches them. The cypress and the myrtle, though, those are pleasant things. Those are good things. They are green. They are lush. They are safe, for one. And myrtles have these beautiful flowers. There's something beautiful about them. They are the exact diametric um, garden opposite of what a thorn or a briar is. Now, why the comparison? Why is one replacing the other in this narrative that Isaiah is presenting? And to answer that, we have to go all the way back to Genesis 3. We have to go back to the beginning. So after the tragic betrayal of God by Adam and Eve, Adam is the one who's punished last. And I want you to listen to what God tells him. Genesis 3, 17. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your faith you shall, face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it, the ground, you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That's God talking to the first man ever made. And it's in response to the beginning of all calamity in the universe. The sin of man, which ruined not only the spiritual purity of all of Adam's descendants, it did that, 
but it also shattered the created order. The entire cosmos, all of the cosmos as it was, was, according to Romans 8, subjected in that moment to futility. It was placed in the bondage of corruption. Paul says in Romans 8, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. And part of the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin and their rebellion is that this world would render that subjection to futility in the form of thorns and thistles explicitly in this text. God says, you're going to eat of the plants. That was always the plan. You're going to make bread. You're going to eat of the plants. But now, it will come at a bloody cost. It will not be easy. And in fact, it will be quite painful. This is the response of a holy and just God who's had his fatherly affection and fatherly love spurned. It is an act of treason. Think about it. This is not a simple slip up. This wasn't a mistake. This wasn't a whoops. It was a denial of God's final authority. Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. If you eat this fruit, you will be like him. He knows that. He's keeping it from you. That's why they took the tree. The tree wasn't just fruit. They didn't just want to eat fruit. It was a play for the throne. And so in Isaiah 55, we're going to see the complete reversal of the thorns. We're going to see the complete reversal of this curse. The procession in Isaiah 55 undoes the calamity of Genesis 3. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The people of God, unlike Adam in this moment, have peace and they have joy. To which creation will respond in celebration. The mountains and the hills shall break forth in singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. And as this procession goes, the fall of man is undone. The reconciliation of all things is completed. Now our response to the promise in Isaiah should be, how is this even possible? Because we've got this world. How is this even possible? How does a reversal like this happen? We are still in a world of sin. We are still in rebellion against God. We still deal with, like the Colossians, indwelling sin. You don't need anybody to prove that to you. You just need to turn on uh, CNN for five minutes. And it validates this. We're like the Colossians, and we are longing for a day that, that won't sin anymore. But right now, we still have thorns. We still have briars. We still have thistles. And one day, like God says, every one of us will return to the dust. This is promised to us. Once, to once, um, it is appointed unto every man to die. So just like Adam, we're going to have this happen to us. And so what is the solution? Why, why is Isaiah holding this out to us? What is he talking about? And the answer to how this change happens isn't far from Isaiah 55. In fact, if you're paying attention to David earlier today, uh, when he was reading um, his passage, uh, you'd know if you turn one page to the left, you will be at Isaiah 53. And I want to read f- two verses from this text. Isaiah 53, 4 through 5. Begins like this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Isaiah is saying, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Listen to this passage from Mark 15. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put on his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. The peace that is in Isaiah 53 culminates in the peace that Isaiah 55 is talking about. For you shall go out in joy, be led forth in peace. Why? Well, because thorns pierced his head. Because a reed crushed his body and he was crucified. He hung on that tree until he knew it was all finished. The ransom had been fully paid for and until the peace and the joy for his people were secured. Now we can ask why he did this and there are many, many answers and they're all good and great. But there is one ultimate reason why he did this and it stands high above all the other reasons. In fact, it stands high above because it's the very reason that those things exist. It wasn't just because he loved us. He did love us. He loved us to the end. It wasn't just because he was undoing the curse of Genesis. He did, and one day it will be done, undone fully. Instead of thorns, we will have myrtles and cypress. Instead of briars, we will have peace and joy. It wasn't just because of that. And it wasn't just because he wanted us to be forgiven. He wants that. He desires that deeply. He wants us in his presence with him. But not that alone. Isaiah 55 tells us why. Listen to the last verse. And it shall make a name for the Lord. An everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. A name for the Lord. An everlasting sign. What does he mean by this? What shall make a name for the Lord? Well, the only logical and rational thing to suggest in the entirety of this passage in Isaiah is that the singing of the mountains, the clapping of the trees, and most of all, the joy and peace of God's people are what makes the name for the Lord what makes an everlasting sign that will not be cut off. That joy, our own jubilant praise of this God and King, is God's name. 
Our joy in God is how he will always be remembered. This peace that we would be led forth in, this everlasting sign that will never ever be cut off, all of that happened because on him was the chastisement that brought us peace. He was pierced so that mountains could sing. He was crushed so that trees could clap. And one day, creation, all of creation, will be set free from its bondage to corruption. But all of that happens for one reason ultimately. Christ died to secure a name that would be enjoyed and praised forever. That's why he died. And a sign that will never ever be forgotten. Never be removed. That will last for all eternity. And this is exactly why Paul in Colossians tells us that all treasures and wisdom and understanding have one source. One source alone. Their source is the treasure of all reality, Christ Jesus himself. Without the supremacy of the glory of Christ, nothing that happened in redemptive history has any real value. Paul knows this, and that's why he's using the letter to the Colossians to present, Jesus is your treasure. He's what is worthy of absolute delight, absolute favor in your heart. And <laughs> what we need to really calibrate here is this, that God created a world in which his pursuit of your joy and his pursuit of his glory are not in opposition to each other. And one of the things Christians have to grapple with is, do you believe that? Because if you do, you will treasure Christ as supremely worthy. The cross exists. That's, this is why the cross exists. The cross exists so that every single impediment to us treasuring Jesus and being satisfied in Jesus is removed. And so as we celebrate the rest of Palm Sunday today, as we worship, as we take communion, I want you to consider the cross. Consider all that he did, especially this week of all weeks, as we go forward towards Easter. Um, consider all that he did on that cross to remove every single possible blocker, every single possible barrier to keep you from treasuring Christ as the greatest value in the universe. So as we worship here in the next few minutes, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And if your faith is in Christ Jesus, if you've trusted him to secure this joy and peace for you, I would ask that you take these elements and I want you to reflect today on um, just what they represent, the body and blood of Jesus Christ, and think of words like pierced and crushed and recognize that that was done for you to remove everything that would keep you from loving him. I want to close with two very brief passages that hopefully will get our hearts in the right place. We can experience this joy n now, in part. We can experience the delight of treasuring in him in part now. But one day, we will fully appreciate it. For now, we will return to the dust. It's appointed unto every man to die, like I said earlier. That's going to happen. But I want you to listen to the words of David at the very end of Psalm 17. Listen to the last verse here. 
And listen to what awaits the people of God when our hope of glory finally breaks into the present. Listen to this. As for me, David says, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Complete satisfaction. And when that happens, when you do see God face to face one day, and you will see him face to face one day, the next thing that will happen, Revelation 21.4 tells us, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. I, John uses this language, and I don't think, I think we fail to grasp it, that the hand of God would press against our cheek to wipe away the tears. You don't put your hand on a person's cheek unless you know them and love them to wipe away tears. And he's doing that here. One day we will be led forth in peace. One day we will go out in joy. And he will, praise be to God, make a name for himself. An everlasting sign that will never, ever, ever be cut off. And that name, that sign, will be our joy forever. Let's pray. Father, I know that we can hear passages like this about the treasure of Christ Jesus and them have a range of effects on our hearts. And uh, my prayer right now, Father, is that your Holy Spirit would work in and all those things, not for this to be a forgettable encounter with you in your scriptures, not for this to be something that we hold on to for a few minutes and then completely drop, but for this to be the dominating reality in our hearts that we would desire more than anything else in the world, that this body of believers, risen hope, would desire more than anything else in the world to treasure Christ Jesus, to, to worship him and consider him the highest of all realities that he would be the delight of our soul. He wouldn't be an obligation. He wouldn't be something that we do. He wouldn't be something that we think of as a fact, but he would be what we live and die for. The first thing we think of in the morning, God, I'm alive and I'm with you again one more day. And the last thing we think of at night, thank you for all that you've given us, Christ. We don't deserve it. We love you. And that our day in between those two moments would be saturated with a conscious and subconscious recognition that without Jesus Christ in this world, ultimately nothing matters. He is our treasure. He is our delight. And we will have him and nothing else if that's what it will cost. I pray that that would be the dominating factor in our hearts as we go from this place. Father, glorify your name in the next few minutes with worship and communion. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.